The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We start today with a consideration of Florida Man, one of the most reliably amusing memes of the 21st century. The conceit is that Florida is so bizarre, such weird things happen in that state that headlines routinely begin with the words Florida Man and end with such unbelievable humor and pathos. You can imagine Florida Man is almost a kind of offshoot to the rest of us, as if somewhere on the Linnaean diagram, Homo sapiens branched off into Homo Floridian. Florida man gets tired of waiting at hospital, steals ambulance, drives home, is a typical headline. Florida man breaks into jail to hang with friends. Florida man tries to rob GameStop while wearing transparent bag on his head. Florida cop, there's, there's a subspecies, the cop. A Florida cop claims Burger King put dirt on his food. Investigation reveals it was seasoning. Things are different down there in the land of Florida man. Florida man charged with assault with a deadly weapon after throwing alligator through Wendy's drive through window. Florida man. Here he is, arrested in local park for practicing karate on swans. Today, Florida man steals BMW after he's told he can't buy it with food stamps. Tomorrow, Florida man disguises himself in bull costume as he tries to burn down former lover's house with pasta sauce. It's hard to stop at just one Florida man. The more you read, the more a whole world opens up. Who would do this? Why? Why always Florida? Florida man wearing mop on his head terrifies neighbors with demands for eggs. Who are these people, these individuals living like creatures, governed by crazy goals and concocting even crazier schemes to accomplish their purposes? They don't live in our world with our institutions. They are slightly askew, crashing into our world like a deranged Sasquatch. Florida man calls 911 to report lack of vodka. Okay, I guess. Florida man in tutu breaks into farmer's market to (laughs) to consume fruit and soda. Why not? Florida man filmed stealing dozens of pigeons while wearing trash bag and bucket on his head. Readers of 20th century literature, and in particular the literature of the South, will recognize something familiar in these headlines. There is an artistic subgenre that seems to have similar roots. The Southern Gothic. Damaged, deranged, deeply flawed people trying to accomplish something. A world opens up. A haunted mansion, a decayed community, a sinister setting and bizarro people living in it. This is the world of William Faulkner and Carson McCullers and Flannery O'Connor and many others. Deep poverty, shocking violence, a blurring of the natural into the supernatural. Where does this come from? We'll explore it all with our guest, a poet who inherited that tradition and now writes within it and against it. Today on The History of literature. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Let's get straight to it. David Vandenberg is here today, author of the book Love Letters from an Arsonist. David grew up in Florida, and his poetry has these elements, swampy decay, trailers, the grotesque all around, and the supernatural, too. He's also a very thoughtful guy, a Virgil, to guide us through this Floridian inferno. We'll talk to him about his upbringing and his own modern-day take on the Southern Gothic in a moment. But first, how about some literary news? Hilary Mantel, author of the Wolf Hall trilogy that 
astounding historical fiction series, died last year. Now we know what she was working on when she died, and it turns out that she felt it was time to write something lighter, says her agent, Bill Hamilton. She'd written about 20,000 words of a book called Provocation. And if that sounds a bit to you like a Jane Austen title, well, that's no accident. It was a Jane Austen mashup, a sequel to Pride and Prejudice told from the perspective of Mary Bennett, the middle sister. While it sounds like Hilary Mantel liked the idea of shrinking history down to Jane Austen's size, the expansive side of her didn't fully disappear. The book was also going to feature characters from all the other Jane Austen books, making walk-on appearances. But the star of the book, or at least in the two paragraphs that have been shared with the world, is Mary, and Mary had a completely different take on Mr. Darcy. Darcy's not such a catch in her view, and this leads her to wonder if men are being given too much credit by women in general. Quote, A solemn countenance, a grave manner, a preoccupied frown. These suggest to us a mastering of life's perplexities born of a habit of deep reflection and vigorous examination of every fact and circumstance. Yet, but what if the frown means nothing but ill humor? If the grave and preoccupied air means nothing but insufficiency in the face of whatever circumstance is present? What if the long silences, so intimidating to my sex, are merely the consequence of having nothing to say? What if that prevailing solemnity results from a simple failure to see the joke? Reader, to think it is to know it. Darcy was a more harmless soul than we had imagined, and replete with good intentions. His silence in company proceeded not from a conviction of natural superiority, but from a solid, sterling stupidity, such as an English gentleman alone dares display. End quote. Hmm, tantalizing. Mantel is, <laughs> she's willing to be sharply critical. Her line from a few years ago about Kate Middleton being a fashionable bit of nothingness is one for the ages. Quote, a jointed doll on which certain rags are hung. End quote. My goodness. Poor Kate. And, and poor Darcy. <laughs> Solid sterling stupidity. Ah. And poor us for not having a completed work to enjoy. Provocation goes on the list of great literary what-ifs. Okay, speaking of what-ifs, what if I just stop talking and bring out the guest? Well, wonder no more, dear listener. We'll do just that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is David Vandenberg, whose debut collection of poetry, Love Letters from an Arsonist, provides a modern take on the genre known as Southern Gothic. David Vandenberg, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me. 
So let's start with you. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in College Park, Florida, which is you know a few miles north of Orlando proper. And fun fact, it's where Jack Kerouac was living, actually mm. published on the road and, and wrote The Dharma Buns. Mm-hmm. And just south of Eatonville, where Zora Neale Hurston set their eyes for watching God and a bunch of other works. All right. Or, you know, for people outside of Florida, I'm approximately <laughs> 20 miles north of Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So a lot of people, I think, in America, but especially we have a lot of listeners who are abroad and and they're probably wondering how exactly Florida fits into the South. And, and especially if they're thinking of Miami, they might think, well, that's not really the South South, is it? But when we're talking about Central Florida, Northern Florida, we're talking about a much different relationship that that part of the state has with the South, right? Yeah, yeah. So in Florida, the best way to describe it is the more north you go, the more south you get. Mm, mm -hmm. South Florida has Miami. It has a very rich multicultural scene. Central Florida, you it's called the I-4 corridor. And there you do have sort of the progressives, the liberals. And then as soon as you go a little bit outside of the city there, then you get into sort of the traditional south. As soon as you get to the top of Florida, you're basically in the deep south there. Mm, hmm And it would be a bit of a, a misconception for people to imagine you living, uh, when I think of Disney World, I think of parking lots, but you had a quite a different childhood from that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I moved out to LA, the, the question that everyone asked me was, oh, you know, you're from, you're from Florida. You must have loved Disney World. And I was like, I just, I, yeah, I don't know. You know, I just, I never cared about it. I went maybe five times. We had a uh, hunting lease. It was a, a two bedroom trailer on Mormon land down in Kenansville. Which, if you were to look up Keenansville, I think it's listed as a semi-ghost town. Mm. I, I don't know what that means, but it, it really feels right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we weren't we weren't in the town. We were sort of out there. It was a, a ten thousand acre lease, lakes, canal, woods, swamp, Florida scrub. Yeah, all four. I think that there were probably six or seven trailers there, and so I spent a lot of time out in the wilderness there. My dad would take us. You know, we'd hunt or fish come back to the trailer at night. And then when we got older, he would take us out and, and drop us off by ourselves somewhere and say something like, you know, okay, <laughs> I'm dropping you off here. I will meet you at Clayhole Pond at dark. And mm. then he'd drive off and you sort of have to go through and make our way to him. So it was, it was wild. It was really wild. Yeah. And your family was out hunting turkey, deer, pigs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you had turkey season, Deer season, pigs are, you know, they're a nuisance, so you can hunt them whenever. You could also hunt for coyote if, if they were there, uh, which they usually were. And then we also, you know, occasionally hunted for alligator, too. That's a much more complicated process and like, getting the permit to do it. Mm-hmm. So any sort of wildlife down there. And we might think of hunting, especially when executives go parachuting into some wildlife preserve and do two days of hunting, or when you see a show of the royal family going out and and standing there with their assistants and they're aiming at things in the sky and so on. But this was actually a more visceral process for you. Is that right? Yes. I was reading about some of the, <laughs> the tasks that you were given as a young child. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing that someone might do on a pleasant afternoon. Yeah, we did not have our butler out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'd go out, we'd wake up around four o'clock in the morning and uh, sort of hoof it out there. And you'd have a blind, you know, sort of a, a stand or something that you would set up that you would build carved into these like thick palmetto bushes and enough so that way you, you could be hidden. And, you, and then you're just out there in the woods, just be me and my dad or just me. And, you know, if something came along, you'd, you'd try to to call and, and get the beast to come in. And then if you shot it, if you killed it, then that was, you had to do everything. You field dressed it, haul it back. And so it was a very visceral experience. Yeah, you know, And my dad was very excited to pass on his sort of knowledge of the natural world to us, mm. where he's a, a cardiologist. So he has a deep knowledge of, of the body. Mm. And he'd sort of sit us down, even when you know, we were very young, I was three, four 
and he'd sit us down and he'd be you know, cutting the belly open and taking the organs out and saying like, okay, like this is the liver, let's cut this open. And you can sort of see how it's constructed. This is the stomach, let's cut this open and we can take a look at what food this creature's been eating. And yeah, it was just this very, very powerful experience of holding death in my hands at a young age that really influenced my writing. Yeah, well, you can see that in your poetry, but let's not jump ahead too much. I'm interested in what did this mean for your father? Was it was it part of a, a long family tradition or was this something that he started? Were you basically carrying on generations of people who were hunting like this and passing along stories and so on from generation to generation? Yeah. So yeah, my family, or at least the Vandenberg side, especially is, is really big on family history, really big on storytelling and sort of passing those experiences down. So when my dad was a kid, he used to go out on these several week long hunting and camping trips with his father and his grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I know that that was something that was, that was really, really important to him. You know, he absolutely loved his grandfather. And so he wanted to sort of pass down those experiences to us as well. And it was also really special for him because, you know, he really didn't get to spend a lot of time with us. He, mm -hmm. he, he had his own practice. And what that effectively meant was that by five o'clock in the morning, he'd be at work and then he'd stay at work until seven or eight o'clock at night. So we had very little interaction with him except as sort of this very strict disciplinarian. But mm -hmm. then when he would sort of shut the practice and, and take us down to the swamps for a couple weeks, it was his opportunity to sort of be with us on his own terms where he has this spark that would sort of like come into his eyes and and he'd get excited and you know just be able to enjoy having children. Mm. So that was that was really very, very important. And it's something that remains important to him. When we go down, I'll still go down to the hunting grounds with him. And it's just something he absolutely, you know, he, he loves just being out there in the wilderness and being with us. The way that he's put it now is like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't even care if he, he were to kill something. He just likes being out there with his children. Mm. Yeah. How did books fit into all of this? What were you reading and was he a reader or how were you fitting books into the the hunting trips, but also just sort of helping you make sense of this childhood that you had? Yeah, yeah. So he did not have much time to read. He did love magical realism and mm. he loved sort of these gothic stories. So he, you know, when we would go down, for instance, you'd sit around this big bonfire at night you had the cattle lowing in the distance and you know, the occasional coyote calling or, or what have you. And uh, he'd recite Edgar Allan Poe poems to us Ooh. around the fire. Uh, <laughs> That's so vivid. So that was, that oh. was sort of like my introduction to it. And then again, just, you know, because we had this emphasis on storytelling, you know, he used to come and, and try to tell us stories if he could just make up a, a different story every night. And so from a very early age, I was interested in Poe. I was interested in magical realism. He gave me 100 years of solitude to read when I was 10. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. it was that kind of thing. And then, and then he was also very interested in, in having us learn about history. And so he gave us books on various you know, figures throughout history. So, you know, I was eight years old and reading biographies of Genghis Khan and mm. Robert E. Lee, kind of other figures in the American frontier imagination. Did you feel like you were Southern and part of the South? Was the Confederacy part of what was around you at school or in the popular culture or anything like that? Yeah, so there's definitely this feeling of the lost cause being accepted in the South. Yeah. And the lost cause is basically this idea, or, you know, it's a reconstruction of you know why the Civil War was fought. And it says, well, the Civil War wasn't actually fought over slaves. It was, it was fought over states' rights and different economic systems. And the South was always sort of doomed to lose because it, it lacked the resources and the manpower. But man, it had such great generals and strong soldiers that they, you know, they fought so hard. 
Yeah. And of course, all of that is just bullshit. And you don't realize it when you're sort of being taught that because it, at the time, it seems like, oh, I'm, I'm getting the real story. That's something that as humans, like we're, we're very interested in like, you know, I'm going to get the secret knowledge as to why this happened. Yeah. And that's a very attractive idea. And the problem is that it's a, a total rewrite of history born out of sort of the shame of losing and trying to make sense of, you know, well, what happened? You know, what happened? People were calling the Confederates traitors and they were like, what happened there? And as sort of the next generation came around and tried to make sense of it, that's when they really started putting this golden glow onto the whole affair. And that, that's, of course, when you had like the rise of the daughters of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. who famously, like, they're the ones that really helped fund putting up these Confederate statues all over the country. And they sort of changed the narrative around it. But of course, that narrative leaves out first off, like what the actual words were, or what the actual intentions were of the people who were seceding. If you read the Declaration of Immediate Causes, you know, slavery is all over there. That's the, the document announcing the secession of the states. And of course, it completely erases the injustices and the long history of slavery because it becomes sort of this inconvenient aspect of the new white identity. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of that going on. You know, you go out 30 minutes outside of the city and you can see Confederate flags flying. But I was in that setting, but I never really felt like I fit in, mostly because I just felt like I never fit in at all. You know, I was hmm. I was the second of six kids. And as happens, I just sort of felt overlooked. I felt kind of extraneous and desperately wanted attention, but was horribly uncomfortable when I got any sort of attention. And so I always felt like no matter where I was, that I was sort of removed from the experience, which again is one of the big reasons why I read so much is because I could just go and and be by myself and open a book and people would look over and see that I was reading and know not to bother me, which mm. was sort of a way of, of controlling my own autonomy. Before I knew how to articulate that, because I'm you know, seven years old, it was a way of accomplishing that. You have such an interesting background. The two main things that we've talked about seem to really be different sides of a coin of, you know, on the one hand, the reading and the retreat into the world of ideas and imagination and so on. But on the other hand, this experience with your father and the hunting trips and his experience as a cardiologist and just the physicality of all of it and the elements of history you've talked about, whether it's the South or Genghis Khan or something, it feels all very real and very sort of the opposite of somebody who's retreated into books and so they're living in an imaginary world. But it almost seems like you had books on the one hand and a world of ideas, but on the other hand, something that was very visceral and tangible. Yeah, yeah. And to me, I think I was always interested in how stories could come alive like that. Mm. Even before I knew how to write, I had a little notebook. And before I knew the letters, I can like go and look at the pages and it's all just like very neat squiggles in these lined pages. And then I learned my letters and it's just pages of A's and B's and C's. And then eventually when I learned how to write, I started writing stories. Mm. I must've been kindergarten, so four or five. And the stories that I wrote were that sort of weird mix of the natural world, but then also getting into this sort of like Gothic imagination. So it was all about you know what the witches were doing, sort of getting into these fantastical lands. Yeah. So that definitely influenced this feeling that I have, even though I identify as an atheist or a hopeful atheist, this feeling that I have in my writing that the natural and the supernatural world are really just a single aspect or that a veil that is between them is really tattered and torn and allowing passage from one side into the other. Mm. I'm imagining too, I mean, when I wrote stories as a elementary school kid. I remember one that was kind of a uh, modeled after the Hardy Boys, but <laughs> I uh, did my own after Redwall, so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm imagining that mine would be sort of like, oh, here's a, a football player and the touchdown he scores to win the game or something. And I'm picturing yours as being someone tramping through the wilderness and freezing to death or or having, you know, be- <laughs> being beheaded by uh <laughs> 
an evil spirit who a demonic force that appears. Oh, I see you've read my early work. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be interesting when we start talking about the Southern Gothic, because a lot of it feels sort of inevitable. But let's hold that off for a second. I wanted to ask you, well, I guess we could talk about the Southern Gothic, because I, I know we wanted to talk about Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood. Where does Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor, and when did you kind of discover these writers? Were you still that young, or is this something that came to you as you you got into college or or later? Yeah, so I was a little bit older. So we had to read some Faulkner for school when I was probably like 17. And I loved it. Mm. Just so much about the atmosphere and the characters. I just felt like I recognized them and it resonated with me. Mm. You know, that it spoke these experiences that I had had as a kid was so imaginative in the way that you could bring in sort of the spirits and the supernatural element. So from there, I loved Faulkner. I loved Beloved. Mm. You start to break away from the idea of how writing should look or how writing should work. Um, into sort of stream of consciousness. And that was just so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So I got to O'Connor when I was a little bit older than that. I, was, I think I was in my mid-20s. And Wise Blood in particular, what I really loved about it was how alienated everyone is. Mm. So in the book, you have really just a handful of characters. So you have Hazel, who is, he's lost, right? He comes from a family of preachers. He's been told that he's going to, that, you know, Jesus is, is going to save him or has saved him. Then he'll be a preacher. He's trying to run from that fate. He meets the Hawks, Asa and Sabbath. Asa is this blind street preacher. Sabbath is his young daughter and Enoch as well. And Enoch is this really sort of lost kid. He's not a kid. He's, he's older, but he's you know sort of separated from his dad, mm. trying to make his way in the city. And Enoch is sort of driven by this wise blood, which is sounds like the best way that I can imagine it is like, imagine if OCD and the accompanying intrusive thoughts had this religious charge. And these characters are so flawed and broken and hopeless, and they're all looking for something from each other, but they're not listening to each other. They're completely in their own world where they're all just pursuing their own thing. And so they have these conversations where they don't actually talk to each other. They're just like talking past each other. Mm. And I love that sense of alienation and loneliness just because it felt like something of my childhood, I think, where I was like, yeah, I, I get that. That was one of the things that I really enjoy just about the actual interactions in the book. And then I love her descriptions. Something with the Southern Gothic, one of its characteristics is this focus on the grotesque. Yeah. Both looking at physical location and getting into the description of something that's decrepit and decaying, you know, that these buildings that are falling apart, mold sort of coming up, as well as a focus on the body, the distortions of the body that alienate the body from itself. And in some instances, especially with Enoch, and I really loved this, that was like the body was a thing apart from the mind of the, of the person, right? Where it's like the body is doing things that the soul does not want. Yeah. Which again, just gets into that sense of alienation. So I was in my, my mid-20s and I had just moved out from Florida to Los Angeles. I was very, very unhappy away from my family and moved out to pursue a career in acting. And of course, that was terrible. And that really connected with me. Did you connect the sense of alienation that you were seeing in Southern writers to the history of the South? Definitely. The best way that I can put it is that Southern history is a history that's been completely whitewashed. Mm. The real and social landscape of the South is just a palimpsest over which the actual history has been completely rewritten. And it's rewritten in a way that creates the sort of the, the myth of a white individual today who is self-possessed, sort of like you know, the one man against the government, and completely disconnected from actual history. Mm. Just this hollow construct. It's in other places as well. I think most famously, and this you know, blew my mind, Little House on the Prairie. I loved those books growing up. I can't tell you how many times I read those books. And as I got older, I learned that actually Laura Ingalls Wilder was just a very, very conservative woman. 
Mm. Everything that's in her book, I assume, is true. But that her diary and her experiences were edited by Laura working with her daughter, who was also very conservative, to create a story about the frontier experience that completely stripped any sort of government influence or Mm. that really just reflected this individualist narrative that if you just read the books, you have no idea that this was going on. Yeah. And then the society pays a price for not being honest with itself about what actually happened or about what was currently happening. And I mean, the way I understand the Southern Gothic to work, I mean, if we talked about alienation in Kafka's Europe, we'd talk about the rise of bureaucracy and industrialization. If we talked about alienation in in Samuel Beckett's uh, works, we'd talk about the Holocaust and and the feeling of the horrors that humanity was capable of. And it it seems like when we're in the world of the Southern Gothic, at least you know from Faulkner on, we're talking about a world that the lies tear itself apart and it comes out in bizarre ways. And some of this explodes or implodes or something happens where you see this in Flannery O'Connor too. People who are trying to hold it together and eventually the reality explodes all of the myths that they themselves might be clinging to or trying to live with. And and you're kind of left with this view of maybe uh, an old widow in a mansion uh, thinking that she's still uh, young and beautiful and that the house is not crumbling around her. Yes. Yeah, totally. You know, the Southern Gothic, it really arose in the 20th century or early 20th century, I'd say. Um, But it has its roots, of course, like immediately after the Civil War, right? You had just this deep sense of of bitterness, of loss, economic ruin in the South, collapse of the Confederacy sort of led to this political and cultural and religious vacuum. And as people tried to deal with that and reconcile what had happened, the Southern Gothic arose as a way looking back to express those the repressed brutality of the past it came as a way to expose the racism the injustice the violence the poverty where a return to this repressed material and so i think that everything does sort of come when it comes to this head you have sort of the cracks that have been in the structure you know, the cracks that have been built into the people really start to crumble everything. Mm. And I think you see that in Wise Blood as well, right? Where you have you have Hazel and he just falls to pieces. Mm. He he ends up blinding himself to try to prove himself. He murders someone and tries to repent by filling his shoes with stones and <laughs> they're gonna break into a museum to steal a mummified dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Where there's a gorilla who suddenly tells the character to go to hell. And it's uh, actually someone in a costume. Yeah, just a man in a gorilla suit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is just like such a great moment. You have this expectation and this excitement. You know, the the poor Enoch is, is so thrilled. And Enoch, of course, has these sort of transgressive thoughts where he likes to yell obscenities at animals. And so he's trying to come up with like, what's the best, most obscene thing that I can say to this gorilla? And he gets up there and the quote unquote gorilla shakes his hand and he just kind of melts and he starts (laughs) telling the gorilla's life story. And the guy's just like, F you. And it's such this collapse for Enoch. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break and then come back with more from David Vandenberg. Okay, we're back. David, when did you start writing poetry? I really started writing poetry when I was in college, and it was not good. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading a lot of Bukowski when I was 19, 20, and now I read Bukowski, and I'm like, what an asshole. 
Yeah, but you know what Bukowski is good at is giving young people the idea that they too can write poetry. Yes, yes. And he definitely did that for me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you had started with Keats or Rilke or something, you might never have picked up the pen. (laughs) Exactly. So the world is even even worse for it then. (laughs) Yeah, so I started in college and I just enjoyed writing in general. It wasn't poetry specifically. So I'd write poems, wrote short stories, moved out to LA. I wrote a screenplay and I ended up going to law school. And so sort of my available time to write really took a nosedive. And so I focused hard in the preparation for law school. And then during law school, I focused my creative energy into poetry because it was something that I could do based on my time constraints. I could sit down and write something in a short period of time And then go back to studying property law or studying tax law or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that the earlier stuff that I wrote, to me, it was fine. It was good. But it didn't feel like I had really found my voice yet. Mm. And that came a little bit later when I was working on Prometheus Dreaming, which is a literary journal online that I had founded. And my big takeaway, you know, number one, like there is a lot of bad writing out there, sure. But also there's an awful lot of good writing out there that nobody ever notices and that no one is going to get the chance to read just because there's too much of it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when I was reading these very fine submissions and I thought about my own writing. I was like, well, okay, what does it take? Like, what does it take to really have something that breaks through? And so I sort of turned inward and I asked, okay, what is it that anyone can write a good poem? Mm -hmm. Anyone can have a good turn of phrase, an interesting idea. What is it that really only I can do? Or, Or what is it that I can do the best? What is it that's really unique about my experiences that's gonna set me apart? And that was when I really found my voice and the voice that really predominates love letters from an arsonist. And I leaned into that with the idea that like, you know what, like, yeah, this is, this is kind of weird. Uh, This is off-putting. And I get that a lot of people aren't going to like it and they don't like it, then it's fine. But that the people who do read it and do like it for the people that it does resonate with, I think it's going to be sort of a much stronger attraction than if I hadn't put myself out there so fully. Did you feel like you were choosing what to write about or did the subject matter and the tone choose you, so to speak? Was it was it basically you were saying, I want to dig deeper, I want to be more honest, where should I go for that? Or were you saying, if I'm going to dig deeper and going to be honest, this is what I have to write about? I think the former. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that I had to write about it, but but that when I started digging deep within myself to see what was in me that I thought was interesting, what was in me that I thought was true, what actually reflected my view of the world. I think for a long time, like I was a very withdrawn person. I was very shy. Mm. And so I just mirror what other people said or, or just because that was easy because it meant that there's like no conflict. And so when I was really asking myself, okay, like what is it that I believe in? What how is it that I actually view the world? Like what is what does it mean to experience life like my way? That it turned into these poems. Right. So wise blood and the Southern Gothic tradition in general, I guess I'd say is It has these themes of religion, redemption, racism, life and death, freedom, free will. Are those themes that you've inherited as part of what you found that you needed to write about? Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. The idea for the book itself even is broken out into these three epistles, right? So it has this sort of religious structure from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's strongly inspired by religion. It has that sense of alienation all through it, you know, struggles with Southern identity and racial injustice, the violent history of the South. So it's definitely in my work and hopefully I did it justice. And then in exploring those themes... The Southern Gothic also, it veers into eccentric characters and situations, the grotesque and bizarre, shocking violence and death, madness, decay, despair. Is that, were you drawn to those elements as well? Yeah, I was, because there's something to me that is really attracted to that sort of the, the base level of human experience, mm. that's that sort of unmediated from the niceties that we have adopted Mm -hmm. to look at what is the impulse there? What's the impulse beneath all of 
the constraints that we've put on ourselves. And just so happens that in the South, you have a lot of people who have not put those, those constraints on. And so they'll go out and get drunk in the middle of the day and yell at their neighbors or fire guns off to keep property values down or, or what have you. And so that just felt very dynamic and exciting to write about. Mm. Although truth be told with a lot of the poems, sort of how it would come to me, and I've talked about this a couple times, I have no ability to visualize something in my head. And I didn't realize that not everyone sees the world that way. And so my poems still come to me sort of as this, as just a word or as a phrase that just sort of bounces around in my head. And from there, if it's interesting, if I'm not able to get it, get it out, I'll sort of explore it. And I'll say, all right, like, what's the rest of this story here? Mm. And in my head, get built into 85% of a completed poem. And then once it's sort of been fleshed out and it just feels complete, where just like it sounds right to me in my head, then I'll sit down and I'll write it out and I'll start finalizing it. Mm. Is there a, a poem you could read for us from the collection so the listeners can get a sense of what the finished product sounds like? Yes, there is. So the collection is called Love Letters from an Arsonist. So it feels appropriate to read the poem that is mm, called Love yes. Letters from an Arsonist. Love Letters from an Arsonist. Daddy was a wildfire, burned himself inside out. Spat out pinecone suns, what can only grow in flames. Held me close while so I burned his fingers. Kissed me on flintlock mouth. Belch smoke, laughed. That's my boy. I loved stars and tarry skies. Took them out of constellations like loose diamonds. Turned to glass and greasy palms. Smashed to pieces against chipped asphalt. Said, walk on, boy. That bridge was made to burn. And you more tender than man. Drank gasoline from mama's breast. Breathe fire when I dream. Love you strong as devil winds. Remember me when sky is red and night haze reads 110 and moon as big as it's ever been. Because, baby, I've been burned before and you're the match for me. Saw the future in the blaze. Ash footprints walk backwards and half ghost steps. White corn liquor sings. And all I ever was or am is nothing like I hope to be. Found God out back making mash. Ask. Why you make me like this? He say, There a hole deep down at the bottom of you. I ask why. He say, My son, because you're like me. Mm. What kind of God appears in these poems? Yeah, so God initially started for me an attempt to an attempt to explain my own sense of loneliness mm. and serve as a foil for myself where I could sort of explore the things that are inside of me and try to like look for a root cause. And then from there, it he turned into this larger just-so character meant to offer a stronger critique on, on society writ large, where he's sort of this creative who has become disillusioned with his work, sort of created the world with all of its problems writ large and then sort of got sensitive and hmm. didn't like that people didn't like what yeah. he had done gave it free will so it yeah. could make decisions for itself and, and pass judgments and and do things <laughs> yep. and then decided didn't like how it turned out and just sort of threw up his hands and and walked away hmm. and so i keep him as that sort of character um to return to, to sort of ask these questions of, well, why do things have to be the way that they are? And I like having him as both this like very absent father, sort of this mean drunk and someone who like, yeah, cares, but just is too tired to, to try to like insert themselves into the world, try to fix the problems that are in it. Mm. When we've talked about the Southern Gothic so far, and talked about it as sort of the the bizarre and the violent as being this symptomatic, basically, of a society that hasn't reckoned with what it needs to reckon with or hasn't been honest with itself. And there's symptoms and then there's cures. Do you see any room for hope? Do you see any way forward or or any solution? Or are you in the tradition of diagnosing the problem and exposing that? 
I am a very bad pessimist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I naturally have sort of these like very dim views, very pessimistic views. Yeah. But at the same time, like I can't help myself, but have that like glimmer of hope. You know, I, I just get so bored with straight pessimism. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Things suck. So what? <laughs> You know, or it's like, okay, what's the point? Like if, if things suck so bad, like, you know, who cares? And so even though I am very pessimistic and it's not like in my nature to have hope, I feel like it's still there and it, it comes into my work. In particular, I do see room for hope. You know, I think that there's, I, I'm not one to agree with the phrase, the moral arc of the universe is, is long, mm-hmm. but it bends towards justice. I don't believe that. I believe that the morality of a society is something that is fought for every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that right now we are at a time of great struggle in determining, are we going to hold ourselves accountable for injustice? Are we going to acknowledge the sins of the past in a way that it continues to have an impact today? Particularly in the South and in Florida, my home state, you have these really very aggressive interpretations, if you will, or fabrications of history, you know, like the, the Texas textbooks that referred to slaves as immigrants and like laborers mm. that is just trying to negate that experience. But at the same time, you have individuals like these two brave young men in Tennessee who were expelled from the legislature. You know, at, at you have another brave young man from Florida. I think he's, I think he represents Orlando in Congress who are sort of standing up and speaking out. And I think that the Generation Z or the Zoomer generation, whatever you're calling them, I feel like they don't have the same kind of, or you know, maybe they, they have the self-doubt that we have, but that they are still very active and driven in terms of calling out hypocrisy and in calling out the injustice that is being covered up. Mm. And so I do have a lot of hope that the next generation coming down the pike is going to fight for what's right. Maybe I wasn't fair, too, when I was talking about the Southern Gothic and that it was diagnosing a problem and looking for cures. Maybe the the act of bearing witness and representing and saying, this is not a group of people who are noble victims who should all be on statues sitting on top of their horses. This is a bunch of crazies who are desperate and torn apart and are breaking into museums to steal a mummified dwarf. And that is a step in the right direction of saying, let's look around and call things for what they are and not pretend that things are something that they're not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Taking history off of a pedestal and sort of dusting it off and looking at all of the the breaks and the imperfections in it to understand this really isn't what people are saying it is. Like, this doesn't represent the past as it actually happened. I think it's tough because there are still so many people out there who have a secondhand association with the Civil War. So, for instance, my grandmother, who I love very much, her great uncle's fought for the confederacy right like we have their letters for her it's very visceral thing because you know she loved them right like they were her father's brothers and and you know she knew them you know they were alive up until they were there for the what was it the 50th anniversary of gettysburg and so it's struggling with those folks and also the folks that they have passed their own kids especially to try to say like look like we have to face the music Mm. let's really get in and identify just how problematic this is sort of how warped this was like let's talk about the past you know it wasn't this sort of idyllic golden agrarian era where men were men and women were beautiful and the dogs and the cats played together you know it's like no let's talk about it like this was a very very violent broken time in our history and we need to be honest about its impact on us today Mm. David Vandenberg, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. No, thank you so much for having me. And finally today, let's turn from the haunted past and the doomed present toward the future. Jason Pfeiffer thinks a lot about the future in his role as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and as host of podcasts have podcasts like Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers. I asked him what he wanted his last book to be, and we got into a fairly lengthy discussion. This one has some twists and turns. So hold on tight. 
Okay, I'm joined now by Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and host of the podcast Build for Tomorrow, which also has a new accompanying book by the same title. Jason, welcome to this special edition of the History of Literature. I am very glad to be here. So, Jason, this question originally came from a listener who asked me, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. Mm, okay. So I'm going to go with describe one that has not yet been written. Mm, okay. I'm going to make some assumptions about the circumstances here, okay, which is that okay. if I have, if I'm reading my last book, uh, it is, it is probably not because it is uh, the last book to have ever been written. It is probably because it is the last one I am going to have access to, which means that I am, uh, um, unfortunately I've reached the end of my time. Um, and, uh, and so if that's the case, then what I would like is, is a book that I think, people would like at any time. Um, It is not a a book that is, uh, it turns out to be possible to be written, or at least nobody's done it yet. Um, But but I actually think it would be a dangerous thing to read um, at any other time in your life. And that is a book called What Comes Next. Uh, Mm. Because... You know, we all want to know what is going to happen in the future, but, I, but that never really made any sense to me because if you know what's going to happen, then you're not going to work towards anything um, mm. and you're not going to push and explore and try new things. And, you know, people say it's a cliche that like, you know, the journey is the destination, but it's true. And and I think that if somebody had come along and told me, well, OK, here's what's going to happen at, at, at age 47, you're going to do this at age 53, you're going to do that. And at uh, age 61, uh, an asteroid hits you and that's the end. Well, like that sucks, right? Then I, there's nothing for me to live for anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so but if we're kind of at the end, then I would love much like, and by the way, I, I should note, like nobody has been able to do this. Um, I recently did a whole bunch of research into Nostradamus because people think that he wrote, <laughs> like he didn't, what he wrote was like, what he wrote was a series of of, of exceptionally vague, like comically oh, vague predictions yeah. that didn't really tell you anything, but were, were able to be applied to absolutely anything. So so um, I would like at the end of my life to, to, to have a sort of the moment at the end of an action movie where the villain thinks that the hero is done for. And so the villain just starts telling the whole plan, right? You know, like <laughs> I was going to do this and then yeah. what's going to happen. Right. And then Gotham <laughs> is going to get flooded. Um, like I want that, like, give me that at the very end. Cause at that point I would like to know, and it doesn't ruin anything for me. Right. Now that you are strapped to the doomsday machine, Mr. Bond, I will tell you that I was actually not planning to use those stock options for uh, <laughs> I was planning to use them to destroy the universe. Right. That's ex- that's exactly right. Like I, I have I have sort of fantasized like a version of this is I've sort of fantasized about um uh, I mean, this is I, this is I, I'm not going to do this. Also, I don't have the money to do this, and uh, nobody has done this yet. But like, shoot themselves off into space at the, at the very end, mm. right? Like that is a thing I think has happened in movies. But wouldn't it be cool, right, to be like, okay, I am. Um, I am. I am 105, or I am um, very near death because of some terrible thing. And uh, it is now time to see what's beyond in a way in which um, I can't come back and there's no point because I, I, I don't have much time left anyway. So shoot me off into space. Let me be the person who like sees the black hole or let me be the person who kind of gets the closest to the sun or something. You might as well, right? You might as well uh, <laughs> see what see what nobody else can at the very, very end. And that, that I feel like is what this book would be called. So anyway, I want it to be called What Comes Next. So what comes next you mean, do you mean uh, you want to know what happens to people after they die or you want to know what happens on the earth that will be, you want a, a glimpse of the future? Oh, that's a good, you know, it's funny. I hadn't really thought it more specifically than that. I will tell you, maybe maybe each uh, maybe each chapter and what comes next can hit a couple mm. different things. So yeah. uh, number one, I would like kind of like at the end of a, of a of a of a '90s movie um, where they then tell you what becomes of every character in yeah, the book, right? You know, it's right. like Susie went on to be. Um, so, uh, so like that would be cool, right? right. Like what's what's going to happen to all the characters that I that I know? Um, because you know, hopefully, I live a nice long life, and by the end of it, I, I I'm kind of actually down to a few main characters, right? Like my children are around. Maybe I have some 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 kind of you know some some extended family. Um, hopefully, a few friends. So, um, what happens to the characters? Tell me, tell me, tell me what the end is. And then also, I would love to know just sort of more generally what happens. Like, can you tell me when do the aliens land? Like, I would really like to know, Mm. right? I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but I am also pretty sure it's going to happen in someone's lifetime. So when does that happen? Can you just tell me? I'd like to know. And, um, um, And then maybe... Can you tell me what's going to happen after I die? Because I, that I, I, I could do without that being a surprise. Yeah. And to say, is there anything I should be getting ready for at this point that would right. help? 
right mentally prepare me just just yeah. just, just give me the you know give me the cliff notes version i'll i'll learn it all later but what am what am i in for let me ask you this uh this is a little bit off the topic of a last book but but it's come to my mind and i always like hearing people's answer to this if i give you the ability let's say you're going to die tomorrow mm-hmm. but i tell you that you will get to come back and you can revisit the earth uh in a multiple of 10. So you could come back 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, whatever whatever you want to f- choose, a million years from now, what do you, what period do you think you would want most to uh, visit? Oh, that is so, that's a wonderful question. Okay, I don't want to visit the Earth during the lifetimes of anyone I love. Mm. Um, so you're at least at a hundred. So I'm at least at a hundred. Yeah. Like fast forward me because, because I don't, I don't want to run the risk that something bad has happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. and, and that I, that I have to see. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and also I, I don't want to feel left out. Right. Yeah. Like, right. Right. So, um, I, I think that whatever the closing chapter is, that's, that, that, that's, that's a wrap on that. And then, uh, what you know? What I would love, I I think a lot about how people of two, three, four. I mean, let's go. Let's go further because you know, if you go like two hundred years ago, people are living in a, a a society that's sort of structured like ours, but our, our technology is totally different. But I'm so fascinated about how if you if you rewind back to like you know medieval times or, mm. or, or prior, that the entire structure of society, like the way that people understood their relationship with each other, was different. Um, and uh, and so I would I would love to see a version of that so i'm gonna go with um let's i don't want to get too crazy here i'm gonna go with 1000 mm. let's, let's jump 1000 years because at that point you know here's another thing about it i'm just thinking very practically here even though this is an impractical question um if you go too far ahead yeah you can't understand anybody because the language will have evolved yeah um and um and and, and a thousand years ahead would actually you know that would put me into some time in which i i I, I probably would struggle if you rewound a thousand years to the kind of early middle English, it's, it's, um it's a very different language, but I think that maybe you could, you could give it a, you give it a try. Uh, uh, actually that's probably not true. I couldn't understand early middle English at all. So mm, I'm going to go 500 years. We're going 500 years. I will understand <laughs> everybody, uh, or at least understand everybody well enough. And I'll be able to see some, some massive changes in society and technology. Yeah. If you went too far, also, like you, I'm, I'm imagining you go a million years and you show up and it's just like this, you know, like oceans of lava or something. And there's just a total wasteland. But you don't know if that was a a good thing, a bad thing. Right. Like it, you know, you don't have just, any context. You don't have any context for it. A thousand or under seems like you'd be able to say, oh, wow, flying cars or, oh, they never fix this or yeah. you know, that kind of thing. That's that's exactly right. Right. Because you don't you don't want to show up and you're like, it's like showing up at the end of the movie. You're like, miss the movie. You're like, what happened? Yeah. Right. Were you there know? space aliens? Was it just was it, did humans <laughs> do this to themselves? Was it inevitable? Was it, you know? sunspots who knew (laughs) right that's exactly right so i think i think 500 years sounds sounds about right because you know if we rewind if we rewind um 500 years from now right you know this is it's a pretty it's pretty interesting and different world um you know you're you're seeing a you're seeing a flirt you're seeing a kind of early flourishing of art and technology as we know it but it hasn't evolved into the things that we know now um you're you're actually seeing the if you rewind 500 years from now you're seeing you're seeing the you're seeing the creation of some of the art that today we think of as timeless um so if you fast forward 500 years from now you might actually see something that you were familiar with but in a completely different way right could you imagine like the people who went to shakespearean plays would um would would their minds would be blown at the way that Shakespeare is is utilized today, the way that those stories have been told. Like, imagine if that's the Beatles in 500 years. Hmm. Like, what's up with the Beatles in 500 years? Some, I, I am sure that something, not a lot, right? Like, you gotta you gotta take what we have produced today and distill it down to like one to three things that yeah. the average person 500 years from now would know. I don't know that that's going to be the Beatles. Probably not. It'll probably be some completely random thing that nobody could anticipate. But whatever it is, <laughs> there'll be something. And, right. and I would love to see what it is. I deal with this question all the time because authors will, uh, they want to come on the podcast or they'll they'll be uh, advocating, you know, uh, PR people will be advocating for authors to come on the podcast. And they'll say, you know, contemporary literature, like that seems like it's your thing. And I'll say, you know, it it often isn't because uh, if you look at literature in history, there aren't 
200 writers that we read 50 years afterwards or 100 years afterwards. Like a whole era might be one author from one country, you know, or or there might be from certain countries, there might be a stretch of 100 years where nothing has survived from it. And it to me, it's a completely different inquiry to look at the history of literature and to look at, you know, books like a, a book club kind of yeah. kind of thing where you're looking at the latest book to come out. That's right. I was talking actually to a to a, a theater historian recently, and, and he was telling me that we only have, I didn't realize this, and I, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but you know, we only have a very small handful of uh, class of, of Greek dramas, uh, um, right? There were a lot more that were written, and they didn't survive. And the reason they didn't survive is because, flash forward a couple hundred years ago, uh, you know, years later, and you basically had medieval monks who were like practicing writing by writing down some of the plays, and, and others of the plays, they just kind of left uh, uncopied. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and as a result, we don't have them now. The things that, that survived might not have been the things that everybody at the time thought were the best. There was some yeah. random intervening force <laughs> right? Right. That, that is the reason why we have whatever it is that we have. And for that reason, it's just, it is absolutely impossible to predict uh, what it's going to be, but whatever it is will have made sense in the intervening 500 years. Let me propose this for your last book. Uh, as you said, it can have a lot of chapters and we can fold it in with that question I asked you. So chapter one can be what comes next, you know, 10 years from now, then 100 years from now, then 500 years from now. And you will get to spend your last book, your your time reading your last book. You could choose whatever chapters you want and check in and see what's going on in the planet in different increments. Ooh, I love that. I, I Now we're really expanding. <laughs> it's great. You know, and maybe so... Um, so and you know maybe actually we could also if we're if we're really just going to start revising things so we could go forward I love that but then maybe we also can we rewind too can we kind of add chapters in the <laughs> from the back and then we're going to change the name of the book it's not going to be called what comes next it's going to be called so what's that whole thing about and uh, and it's just it's going to tell me it's going to tell me everything that's what that's ultimately what I want I, I think that we yeah we are perfect as we are in that if if we knew too much it, it might. Uh, it might drain us of our of our curiosity or or whatever, um, and and our kind of reason to live, right? It, it's a. Uh, are you a, were you a Star Trek fan by any chance? Yeah, yeah, not a yeah. not a hardcore one, but yeah. So um, so my favorite character of the Next Generation, which is the the series that I grew up with, was Q. Um, Q oh, yeah. is this you know Q um uh Q is this uh this kind of they never really explained who Q was, but Q was from some Q. He was from a collective of, of other Qs. And he basically had, he was, he was all powerful. He was, um, he, he just at the snap of a finger, uh, sort of Thanos style now, except that he wasn't quite as, as, um, uh, uh, he wasn't quite as a, a much of a villain. He could just change time and space and he could do uh, anything. And he, for some reason seemed to really like coming and messing with, uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah. And anyway, the thing that was wonderful about that character was he seemed completely bored by this <laughs> power right like he just he you know he would he would show up in these funny dresses uh, right. look like he would look like a french general from the 17th century and and he seemed to he seemed to be going a little crazy by the amount of power that he had and i loved that portrayal because it just it was it was so spot on right like if we have too much we don't try and part of part of what drives us is that we simply do not know we don't know what the point of it all is and we don't know what's coming next and i and i think that's probably to our own benefit for that reason kind of quests to to know to like know what the point is um have never really uh, they don't really interest me, you know, like sort of philosophical or religious questions don't really interest me because because uh, who cares? I don't know. Who cares what the answer is? Right. But uh, at the very, very end, I think it would be nice to know. So I have been asking guests this question because I have not yet figured out what I want my last book to be. And, and these answers are helping me. And you have put on my list now a proposal. It is a two volume set. Uh, <laughs> the first volume is uh, what was that all about, which I think could be written by Jason Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. And then what comes next, which I think will have to be written by God. So yes, you're, uh, that's or at your least, or at least, yes, or at least Q. <laughs> yeah, or Q. <laughs> Jason Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, thanks so much. This was fun. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. There we go. My thanks to David Vandenberg and Jason Pfeiffer for joining me today. We will be back next week with, oh, next week might be 
The Marquis de Sade, who probably should have been from Florida. He could have been the OG Florida man. That weirdo. Anyway, we, we have a great story about him and one of the most notorious manuscripts in the world. We've also got Ambrose Bierce coming up. Soon, he was an early Southern Gothic writer, if you count him. He and Twain are kind of Southern Gothic adjacent, I would say. Another Southern Gothic adjacent writer was Eudora Welty, whose response when she first read an article about the Southern Gothic was, they'd better not call me that. She rejected the term, as I'm sure many Florida men kind of resent the meme. These definitions are hard to shake, and most of us run from them like victims trying to escape a Wisconsin serial killer. I'm Cheesehead Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.